You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Democracy in America has had the singular honor of being, even to this day, the work that political commentators of every stripe refer to when they seek to draw large conclusions about the society of the USA. Alexis de Tocqueville, a young French aristocrat, came to the young nation to investigate the functioning of American democracy and the social, political, and economic life of its citizens, publishing his observations in 1835 and 1840. Brilliantly written, vividly illustrated with vignettes and portraits, Democracy in America is far more than a trenchant analysis of one society at a particular point in time. What will most intrigue modern readers is how many of the observations still hold true on the mixed advantages of a free press, the strained relations among the races, and the threats posed to democracies by consumerism and corruption. So uncanny is Tocqueville's insight, and so accurate are his predictions, that it seems as though he were not merely describing the American identity, but actually helping to create it. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, yours truly, your intrepid podcast host. I may not have an entire department filled with super science scientists, but I do what I can with what I've got. And that pays off in the end. As the wise old Al says in So Dear to My Heart, one of my favorite movies growing up, it's what you do do with what you got that counts. Yes, sir. Today is February 8th, 2022. This is episode 325 of the podcast. And if you couldn't tell, this is the podcast you've been waiting for. This is the podcast I've been telling you over the weekend, over the past three, four episodes. I was looking forward to recording, discussing Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which I just finished yesterday. It is a very great treat, a very great blessing that I am able to listen to audiobooks so much while I work. It isn't that I can listen to them the whole time. I get interrupted with phone calls and text messages and emails and instant messages over Microsoft Teams. And sometimes what I'm doing, especially given that I'm new, I have to just pause and focus on this technical thing, especially as I'm trying to learn it for the first time, trying to double check my work, measure twice, cut once, all that good stuff. But some of what I'm doing is routine and repetitive and it's just I'm moving things from this to that and then I double check at the end to make sure yes in fact everything matches up everything lines up that's correct and when such is the case I can listen to audiobooks this one I started out on double speed on audible and that's what I typically listen to audiobooks at is two times speed one time speed is just way too slow, way too slow. I know what you're going to say before you finish saying it. 
which is a sign that you need to speed up, you need to talk faster. <laughs> At least when I have the opportunity. And that is to say to anybody who listens to this podcast on a quicker speed to get through it faster, I don't begrudge that one bit. I do it too. So I started out on double speed with Alexis de Tocqueville. I ended up turning it up to two and a half speed, not because what he was saying was boring or dull or anything like that, but because I so much wanted to finish the book. I enjoyed the book. It was it was brilliantly written. It was very well-worded. It was very graceful and elegant and artful and insightful. And at the top of this episode here just a couple of minutes ago, what I read for you is the summary on Goodreads. Goodreads.com is a great little social media site just for book lovers, people who are reading books, who want to read books, who want to see reviews on books, who want to be able to organize the books that they have read, have already read. Uh, you can put your books into uh, bookshelves, as they call it, which is just a way of organizing. You can have little categories of books and you can have friends on there. You can follow authors that are uh, still around. It's funny to me, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville has 638 followers on Goodreads. Uh, I don't think he's going to be putting out a whole lot of new content, but uh, maybe they follow because somebody is curating the author's page, posting quotes from time to time. Maybe if uh, something new is in the works as far as things de Tocqueville wrote that uh, are being revised or uh, getting newer and better commentaries or translations, maybe that's where uh, people can go to get updates. I don't know. I don't use it that way. But uh, the summary that I read for you at the top of this episode is quite right. It is brilliantly written. Uh, I don't know about vividly illustrated. I would love to see an illustrated copy. Uh, if somebody has one, please share it with me enough for me to see those illustrations. I would love to see them. Uh, but 1830, 1830, 1840 is when he is writing and publishing. And I would presume if he was publishing as late as 1835 and 1840. He's still working on it. He's still cleaning things up. He's still trying to make sure everything is well organized, well presented for the reader so as to make his meaning clear. But it's such an interesting time. 60 years, 50 years after the Revolutionary War, 40 years, I suppose, you still have... Uh, chaos. You still have a lot of things that are very much in transition and up in the air as far as this new republic. The United States of America is a young country at even 40, 50, 60 years. And so you're also dealing with people who, if they're older, uh, they either remember the nation's founding or they participated in it or they heard stories from their parents. And so you get very close to firsthand accounts, if not firsthand accounts, of the nation's founding. And 
you also have original source material, although he complains, it's funny to me, he complains that there's not a very good record-keeping uh, trend in the United States when he is traveling around, not like in Europe. You know, if I, he posits rather funnily uh, that if a foreign country were to come in and conquer the United States and take it over and they were trying to make heads or tails of where things are at, where the... <laughs> Where is everything, uh, you know, settled, and, and what's the the story here? And we're trying to do an accounting of our new holdings. Uh, they would be hard pressed because there's not a whole lot of records, as he says. And some other observations that he makes, especially as an outsider, and not just any outsider, but as a Frenchman, as a French aristocrat, uh, they're just really, really interesting. They're just fascinating. Because he's not writing in this stale, canned, um, two-dimensional, dry sort of a way. He's writing as somebody who has heard about America, who's interested in seeing for himself what all the fuss is about. As opposed to today, where it's 200 years ago, and we have a hard time, I think, relating to those early Americans and the way they saw themselves and the way they saw the world and the way that they saw what they were doing, what they were engaged in. But de Tocqueville, he writes about Americans not necessarily doing so well in the governance of their affairs as the best men in Europe might do for their administrations. In Europe, you have the, the best men, the most educated, the most skillful, who are put in positions of leadership, and they make the decisions that really count for everyone. And everyone else pretty much just does their own thing, and they rely on those best men to make their decisions for them. And so everybody's just kind of more or less acquiescent, more or less. I mean, there's a limit, there's a line, and there will be trouble if that line is crossed. But there too, there's a strong presence of authority which will get a potential uprising or riot or demonstration under control and harshly deal with anyone who was involved by contrast, in America, everybody feels like they have a part to play in the government of their country. They're electing these representatives, and they want to know what's being done on their behalf. What are their elected representatives doing and saying, and how are they voting, and what are they proposing? What are the arguments for and against this or that course of action? And as such... Everyone talks with his neighbors as though he's making a political speech, de Tocqueville writes. And he pokes some fun at Americans, perhaps uh, fairly, that even if they're just talking to one of their friends, one of their neighbors, they'll start off, gentlemen, 
as though they're breaking into a speech. But what follows is an effort, an engagement, an active mental awareness of how commerce works. There's an active engagement with economics and political theory and philosophy and the business of the country. And de Tocqueville says that that actually makes all of the people of America more diligent in how they run their own business, how they run their own commerce, their own personal households. But de Tocqueville heaps praise on America for its particular strengths, its peculiar strengths. When he feels like praise is merited, when he feels like America rightly deserves credit. As a Frenchman, he downplays how much of an accomplishment, how much of an achievement it was for the Americans to defeat the British. Come on, guys. You had an ocean between you and the home country. Also, you had a powerful ally in France helping you at sea, helping you in many ways. You had powerful allies. You guys didn't do it on your own. And yet, walking that back a little bit with some understandable bias as a Frenchman, of course he would want French pride to get its due and get full credit. He still gives full marks to the American Revolution for having produced people who are on the whole industrious, reasonable, engaged, active, energetic. And he attributes the energy of Americans in large measure to their feeling that they have a stake. Their feeling that this is their country. This is their country. It's not the king's country. It's not the landed aristocracy's country. It's their country. De Tocqueville is not wearing rose-colored glasses, though. He talks about the plight of African-Americans, Negroes, as he calls them. Slaves and freemen are not treated especially well. And he draws a distinction in the South that I think holds true with other things that I've read, talking about the comparing contrast between the North and the South. In the South, you have men who are accustomed to getting what they want right away, no plan B, not having to deliberate about it. And consequently, the men in the South are imperious and impatient. And if they're inconvenienced or things don't go their way in the slightest little bit, they think that they're being oppressed. They're proud and they're haughty and they are sensitive to any perceived slight. But they're accustomed to being obeyed by slaves. And their women, by and large, especially with the plantation owners, are living this fairly insulated and uh, inactive life of a southern belle. Not expected to do hard manual labor. They're not having to work hard. Neither are their husbands. So the women are somewhat frivolous. And the men are imperious. And meanwhile, the slaves are treated very poorly. And meanwhile, in the north, you have 
freed blacks who are not always welcome. In fact, they're very often not welcome. They might be free men, but they're not welcome. And legally, they may be allowed to vote, but somehow, some way, the community will find ways of letting black men know, we don't want you to vote. Just because it might be legal, that does not mean that it is allowed. Because the community says no. And that's troublesome. That obviously bothers de Tocqueville. So also with the Native Americans. De Tocqueville talks about this tendency to be very proud and resistant to westernizing, resistant to adopting the culture of Europeans, the dress and the manners and the style and the education and what have you. A reluctance to assimilate. And meanwhile, he does paint early Americans as being double dealers and being pushy and pushing Native Americans further and further west. As Europeans are advancing west and they encounter Native tribes, they call them together, they give them gifts, they get them comfortable, and then they start haranguing them about how you really should move along because we're here now. And we're going to actually do something with this land. And we've heard out west, there's some really, really good land where the game is plentiful. The land is wide open. And as the Native American tribes are pushed further and further west, they encounter other tribes that already live there. And then there's conflict between those tribes, the tribes that had been there, and the new tribes that are trying to move in. He talks about very casual violence between natives and Englishmen, Europeans. And he paints a picture that because he's not trying to be on the right side of cancel culture and political correctness, basically frames the imperfections of the three constituent racial groups uh, in a, in a not very flattering way. I mean, it, Yes, you do have pushy Europeans who want the land, and you do have proud Native Americans who don't want to assimilate, and you do have African immigrants, slaves, and freedmen who have been dehumanized by their enslavement or the enslavement of their ancestors, by the violence with which they have been driven from place to place, made to work, made to be subservient. In many cases, he says that the Africans embrace this. They just embrace it and they think of themselves likewise. So even if they're free, that's no guarantee necessarily that they think of themselves as free or that they really are free for all intents and purposes. And so de Tocqueville predicts that if there is ever to be a major 
insurrection or war, a tearing asunder, it will be in relation to the black populace. And he's prescient in that regard. I mean, he's writing this three decades before the Civil War. And you can see the pieces coming together with the way that the Southerners handle themselves. Northerners, meanwhile, without slaves, do their own work. And they're much more accustomed to working with their wives, talking with their wives about the business of running the home, running the farm, what have you. They're much much more accustomed to working with their neighbors and the people in the community and their family, as opposed to the southern landowners who own slaves also, and they just command that it be done, and then it's done. And if it's not done, well, then there's going to be corporal punishment. There might even be lethal action taken. De Tocqueville also talks about how as slavery has been made illegal in the northern states, northern regions, and as laws have changed to where children born to slaves are not slaves, there are to, there's to be no more importation of slaves, and also the child of a slave is not a slave, is not born a slave. You see slave owners taking their slaves south to sell them because they're no longer going to be worth as much as if their children invariably would be slaves as well. You buy this slave, this male or female slave of breeding age, they have offspring and you have the offspring as slaves as well. That goes into your calculation. So you pay a higher price if you're buying slaves. You get a higher price. You command a higher price. If you're selling slaves, it's not a pretty picture, but you can see how a law which may have been intended to curtail slavery, not abolish it outright. That wouldn't have probably gone over. It didn't go over. Doubtless there would have been a lot of resistance to that. But not abolishing it outright, but trying to curtail it, how that kind of a law would actually lead to slaves just being pushed south. We're just going to sell these slaves down south and get out now. Because down there, the laws are different. And Tocqueville's right. When a major come apart happens in the 1860s, it is over the question of African-Americans, as we all know. It's over the question of slaves. Yes, it has to do with states' rights, but states' rights to do what? Right? It's kind of like the abortion question. It's a lot like the abortion question, actually. Doug Wilson's got an excellent collection of essays called Black and Tan. I read those last year in which he basically does a compare and contrast between the civil war that was fought over the question of slavery, chattel slavery, which was not biblical. It did not recognize the biblical restraints on how you treat a slave, how a slave is to be treated. But the slavery question precipitated the Civil War. Yes, it was about states' rights. Yes, it was also about slavery. 
states' rights to do what exactly? You have to ask yourself. And then in the 90s, the pro-life movement and the bombing of abortion clinics and the assassination of abortion providers, abortion doctors, and how there was a sentiment in the pro-life movement that we need to have another civil war if that's what it takes to bring an end to abortion. And so Doug Wilson talks about John Brown, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, trying to launch this massive slave uprising and abolish slavery in a vigilante way. But de Tocqueville saw it coming and writes presciently about it. And again, his observations are just really, really interesting. They're just really, really insightful, and they're very gracefully presented. When there's criticism, he gives it. When there's praise, he offers it freely. He's critical of the type of men who typically make it into government office. He says, if there are better men who could run, they clearly don't. (laughs) For whatever reason. They don't expect that they would win, and they don't want the hassle. They don't want the trouble. And yet, he also lays out and he explains the political process. He explains the system of checks and balances. He includes a lot of unpacking of America's founding documents and the evolution of how local and state laws came to be such as they were and how their governments and their constitutions came to be such as they were. He talks about why there are two houses to the legislature. Why do you have a bicameral bicameral, uh, legislature? Why do we have two chambers, the House and the Senate? And why do we do that on the federal level? And why do we do that on the state level? And he basically, piece by piece by piece, talks about the founding fathers and the framers of these state constitutions and the United States Constitution were students of the Greeks and the Romans and the democracies and the republics of antiquity and how baked into the equation was this distrust for human nature on an individual level. If you put an individual in power and give them all of the authority, that's not so good. And so we're going to separate out the authority to command from the authority to punish. We have a judicial branch. That judicial branch is only activated when someone is accused of a crime or when a law is challenged. The law may have made it through the legislature. It may have been signed by the executive. And yet you still are going to have the potential for the judiciary to say that's not constitutional. And why is that important? Well, because the Constitution is actually the higher authority. It's the higher authority to which all of the branches and all of the subsequent laws must submit. But even within the legislative branch, you have 
two chambers. You have one chamber that is elected more directly proportional to population. And Tocqueville has very few positive things to say about the House of Representatives. I mean, if I could sum up in very inelegant language, they're just the worst, right? Like they're just very uncouth, very ignorant, unpleasant sorts of people who make up the house. But that's the people's house. And so go figure. The Senate, meanwhile, he says, is comprised of men who would comprise the best, most learned, most sophisticated, most intelligent, wisest in any country. And they typically serve longer terms. And they're elected by the whole state, not just by chunks of population, 30,000, 40,000, 48,000 people in a state. But the Senate could potentially become a kind of aristocracy if it didn't have accountability to the House. And meanwhile, the House would be an unruly mob. It would be too much pure democracy, which students of antiquity know is not a recipe for success. It would be too much direct democracy, pure democracy, without the Senate, without the Senate to moderate the more impetuous, turbulent instincts of the House of Representatives. And again, I, I, I cannot do justice to Democracy in America in one podcast episode. I think it's a book I should read again. There's a short list of books that I should read more than once, in my opinion. I don't typically read books more than once, in part because there's so many books to read. Reading a book twice means that there is some other new book I am not reading. <laughs> it's an opportunity cost that I count. Democracy in America makes it to a short list of books that I intend to read again. City of God is another one. Augustine's City of God. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is still another. But Democracy in America is a crash course in American civics. Every American should read Democracy in America to understand better our country and its founding and the lost art of thinking comprehensively about why, right? The telos, the teleology of our civic institutions, of our government, and to what end we have this government instead of another. We need to be thinking deeply about these things because as much superior as we might think we are in terms of technology, in terms of our ability to transport goods, refrigeration and electricity and the internet, and smartphones and all of these things, we have lost sight of our country's founding principles to an alarming extent. And de Tocqueville is a great teacher, no less because he's a Frenchman and because 
France has had its own revolution and it didn't go like the American Revolution. And I think in large part, the Protestant nature of America, and de Tocqueville would agree with this, changed the kind of revolution that America had. Now, as he points out, there are differences between the context in which France had a revolution just geographically. You didn't have King George in country with standing armies in country in the American Revolution. You did have the King of France and his armies and his loyalists in country for the French Revolution. But so also, the folks who came to America, not because they necessarily had to for economic reasons, because they were so desperate, not because it was a penal colony like Australia, where they were just banished. And well, I guess you just start a new life there on the other side of the world. This is what it is now. The Puritans who came to America did so on principle. And they had to think really hard about what were their principles in terms of their individual conscience, and if they were leading their families and their homes, why was that going to be easier to do according to the dictates of their conscience in this new world? And if they were trying to conduct the business of their church, the life and practice of the church, why was it an advantage? Why, why was it advantageous to come to the new world and to bring their church to the new world to set up a colony? Not to say that they got it perfect. In fact, they tried communism and it did not work. Because people don't work when you don't get more or less depending on effort. But they came to America and they were very intentional about these things. Not everybody who came to America was very intentional and very principled. Plenty of people, especially in the South, came to America, as de Tocqueville puts it, because they were the younger sons of wealthy, powerful men in the old world. They were the younger sons. In other words, they weren't inheriting the lands and titles that their older oldest brothers were. So they were here to make a name for themselves. They were here to build up their own new land and title. And they conducted themselves accordingly. You get a spoiled rich kid who's always had everything handed to him. He's trying to compete with his older brother. And now you get whole colonies of guys like that. And imagine how that would go. And then those colonies are are interacting with colonies to the north, which are descended from folks who came to the New World because they wanted to live a pure Christian life individually and corporately, and now come up with a system of government by which those guys and those guys can make decisions together for the common wealth, for the common benefit, for the common security for the common good of the country. De Tocqueville also, and here I'm going to exasperate some people who are probably tired of hearing about Joe Rogan and podcasts and CNN and all this, but de Tocqueville almost feels like an independent journalist, right? An independent investigator, obviously being an aristocrat himself, 
He's got some means. He's able to support himself traveling around the United States for nine months. He has resources. And yet, he writes all of this without needing a giant retinue. He didn't need a full court of servants and scientists and philosophers to follow him around like just this giant caravan of French aristocracy in order to have credibility. He was one guy who was observant, who was paying attention, who was taking notes, who was talking with people and interviewing people and reading and examining and seeing for himself the American people up close and not just in this one spot and this one little pocket and not just the Europeans. Hey, I want to observe almost like an anthropologist, but not just anthropology, political philosophy as well. And not just political philosophy, but also theology as well. And not just theology, but economics as well. I, I want to observe what is the condition of Africans in America. What is the condition of Europeans in America? Yes, but what is the condition of Africans in America? What is the condition of the native indigenous Americans in America? How are these various groups interacting with each other? How are they relating to one another? And even when you're talking about Europeans, it's not all the same. The Europeans who've settled in this region have this culture and this way of doing things and these expectations, and they're very concerned with being religiously correct. And they use the scriptures as the basis for their laws. And the Americans in this part of the country are very rowdy or very prickly or very self-important. And oh, here's how they govern themselves. Here's how they do it, right? How do you do it? It was obviously the question that he wanted to answer. And it's astounding to me that he came across the ocean to do these researches. I think that's fantastic. And the observations that he writes are no less, but only more poignant because interspersed throughout he talks about, how did this go in France? How do we do things differently in France? He talks about corruption and the concern that somebody would be bribed to pervert justice or that they would neglect their duty or that they would abuse their power and how Americans actually are far more lenient towards those who are found guilty of abusing their authority, abusing the powers vested in them. They're far more lenient than is often the case in Europe, certainly in France. If you're found to be a traitor to the revolution or to the government in France, it's off with your head. You get the guillotine. You get beheaded. You might also get drawn and quartered, have your head mounted on a pike, he talks about the casual commentary from citizens in the old world to executions. They become so common that it just it, it's uh, it's entertainment. Whereas in America, charges are brought 
more often in part because those who would find a complaint or a cause for complaint are rewarded. There's a finder's fee of sorts. If you bring charges against a corrupt official, you will receive part of the fine when that person has to pay a fine. You'll be rewarded. Good job. You found one. But on the flip side, the governing official may suffer no more than to be censured, to be removed from office, to be barred from ever serving in government again. And Americans feel like that's quite enough of a punishment. It's almost like an internal exile because you are excluded from the political process for the rest of your life. And as such, it's actually more effective, de Tocqueville says. It's more effective that Americans mete out justice to corrupt officials this way. And it's more likely that complaints will be brought when the penalty is less severe, but charges are more often brought. When charges are seldom brought, but the consequences are extremely severe, you will probably have more corruption because potentially corrupt government officials are playing the odds. They're doing the cost-benefit. What's the over-under? Long and short of it, I would highly recommend de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. It is going on 200 years old at this point, 1831, but it is a great read. It is a good read. I give it five stars personally, but that's all of the time I have for this episode. I got to run. It's 7 a.m. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.